Hey there, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of E Pluribus Unum. When you have a chance, and if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please do me a favor and rate and review the podcast, ideally with five stars, ideally with a rave review. It apparently helps other people to find it, and it'll make me feel good. So, when you can, take a moment and do that. I'd very much appreciate it. Today's episode, we are going back to last week's Torah portion, which is Parsha Yitro, or Yisro. The reason we are going back is because there's so much important stuff that happens in the Parsha, and also it is so interesting that we need to go back to it. I'm sorry that I couldn't do it last week, but there is really never a bad time to learn Torah. Even if we're not exactly in line with the weekly Torah portion, there is still stuff to learn. So, Parshas Yisro. Who is Yisro? He is Moshe's father-in-law. And the Parsha states that Yisro heard all of the things that had happened to the Jews in the desert, and he decided to come join the Jews. What were the things that he heard? Well, what just happened? There were the ten plagues. There was the exodus from Egypt, the splitting of the sea, the manna, the attack on Amalek. There were a ton of things for him to hear about. So he came and he brought his daughter Zipporah and his grandchildren, so the rest of Moshe's family, and they there was a nice family reunion. Um, but it wasn't just a family reunion that brought Yisro there. It was a desire on his part to join this nation, which had now to him been proven to be led by the one true God. Yisro was a priest in Midian. He was a scholar. He was knowledgeable in other religions. And again, he was a priest, so not just knowledgeable in other religions, but taught others, other a pagan idol-worshipping religion. And yet he came because he saw that God is the one true God, the God of everyone, the miracles that happened, the 10 plagues, the exodus from Egypt, all of those things proved to him that God was the one true God and he was with the Israelites. So that is where Yisro wanted to be. It's important to realize that Yisro's transformation was an intellectual one. It wasn't just one of emotion, but a reasoned one. I think there's often this idea that we have of pagans and idol worshippers, that they just had these or- wild orgies and there was a wild bacchanalian type vibe and they just sacrificed things and there was no rhyme or reason. But that's not true. As G.K. Chesterton points out, they also had religion and rules and structures that they followed and they were not just emotionally connected to their faith, but also intellectually, and how much more so for Yisro, who was a priest. So for him to make the decision to join the Israelites was not just one of emotion, but one of reason. It was a reasoned intellectual choice. So he comes to the Israelites' camp, and he sees that Moshe is doing all of the judgments for the whole camp, from the smallest squabble to the largest problem, the Israelites come to Moshe, who understandably is exhausted because that's a lot of people to deal with and a lot of squabbles to fix. So Yisro says, Moshe, this isn't right. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be doing this for everyone. Why don't you appoint judges, lower courts, essentially? And that's in fact what Moshe does. So courts are set up for the thousands, for the hundreds, for the fifties, and for the tens. So these lower courts and then Moshe being the top, so some problems would still come to him, similar to our court system. In fact, our court system 
is modeled off of this idea. You know, there are different levels, not just misdemeanor. There are different levels of courts and small problems, you know, there's small claims court. And then the biggest issues go to the Supreme Court, but not every issue goes to the Supreme Court. There are different levels that things go through. And that is how it was set up in the camp to save Moshe to be able to truly lead the people and do the important work that he needed to do without being exhausted by solving every problem. The judges that were appointed were supposed to be men who feared God, men of truth, and men who hated monetary gain. That way they could not be bribed in favor of one person or another. Of course, men of truth is important, and men who fear God, who understand that God is above them and watching everything they do, which should keep a person honest and acting rightly. So Yisro, already, he makes a big contribution to the way that the camp is run and frees Moshe's time and his energy for other things. The other things include the giving of the Ten Commandments. And that's what I really want to get to this week, because that is what is in the Parsha. I have to imagine all of my listeners are somewhat familiar with the Ten Commandments, even if you don't know exactly how to number them. I'm sure you've heard of them, perhaps been taught them, perhaps it guides your life. Hopefully it guides your life, or they guide your life. So I want to set the scene a little bit for what it looked like. So first, God told Moshe to tell the Israelites to prepare because in three days they would receive the Ten Commandments. There were a number of preparations, the mountain Sinai on which commandments were going to be given. A fence was put around it because it was electrified with holy energy and anyone who touched it would die. Men were told to stay away from their wives sexually for three days. This is often thought to be something sexist against women, that women would cause their husbands to become impure, but in fact it is the opposite. It is men who cause their wives to become impure because semen can be active or live inside a woman for three days, and while that is inside her, she is impure. So the men were told to stay away from their wives to keep the wives pure and the men pure also because you had to be pure to receive the Ten Commandments. And... And then the night before the Ten Commandments are given, the Jews actually oversleep, so they wake up late, which is why today on the holiday of Shavuos, there is a tradition for Jews to stay up learning all night. It is our way of making up for that time that we overslept. And then on the day of, it's completely silent, there are no birds chirping, but we can hear lightning and see thunder, so senses are flip-flopped upside down. And then God speaks to the Jewish people. There are more miracles. The tablets are of sapphire, and we're told that the, like it's carved all the way through, but it can be read equally from one side or the other, so it's a very miraculous moment. But the most miraculous, of course, are not all of these set dressing. All of those things are important, and they add to the moment and the awesomeness of the situation, but of course it is the Ten Commandments themselves which attract the most attention. Interestingly, in Hebrew, we don't actually call them the Ten Commandments. We call them Aserata Dibrot, which means the Ten Statements or the Ten Sayings. This will make even more sense when I explain how the commandments are split, because there are ten. There's no argument about there being ten, but there are different traditions. The Jewish and Christian traditions are slightly different, and even within Judaism, there are different interpretations how they split up number one and number two. Three through ten are the same, but one and two, there's a little discrepancy. In some traditions, the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. And this is where it makes sense that it's the ten sayings, not the ten commandments, because that's not a commandment. It's not telling anyone to do anything. It is 
however, reminding the Israelites who it was that allowed them to be free, and also as a reminder of why it is important for the Israelites to keep the commandments, that the following nine were not given by Moshe or by any other human. They are from God directly, and that is why it is important that we follow them. So that is number one in some traditions. I'm going to keep with the tradition that follows how Rabbi Jonathan Sachs enumerated the 10. Dennis Prager does this also. So the first one is not just, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, but also you shall have no other gods before me. So that is number one. Traditionally, we think of no other gods before me as idols. So don't worship a sun god and a moon god and a river god. Don't worship the various gods that the Egyptians have or the Greeks or the Romans. There is one god. That's it. He created the world. He keeps it running. Everything that happens is due to him. And that is important because if we don't accept that premise, there is no reason really to listen to the other nine because it's just one god telling us what to do, but maybe other gods would tell us something different. So to accept the Ten Commandments, one must accept firstly that there is only one God. Dennis Prager gives an additional explanation for this idea of no other gods that I think is really relevant today because I would imagine most of us don't worship idols and we're not following a Greek or Roman tradition or ancient Egyptian tradition of multiple gods. So we might feel like we are observing the first commandment and we might be. This is not me telling anyone that they are doing something wrong. It is just a way of investigating another meaning of this idea of no other gods. Because though we don't have specific other gods in the traditional sense that we might think, there are false gods in every culture and every era. For example, money is a false god. Fame is a false god. Love, the environment, education. And these are not necessarily bad things. Fame, I guess you could argue, and money could really go either way, good or bad. But education, love, these are good, beautiful, important things. But when we worship and pursue them for their own ends instead of for the purpose of creating a world that is more godly, then we are worshiping them as false gods. Think of Lori Laughlin and those other celebrities who cheated and lied to get their children into really good colleges. They worship education. They think that education is the most important thing, more important than being honest or being fair or people who pursue money. Money as a means to an end is fine. So if you're pursuing money because you want to be philanthropic, or like most of us, we have jobs so that we have money to provide for our families or for our commitments, then that's fine. Then money is neutral. But if we want money just to be the richest person in the world, then we are pursuing it for the wrong reason and we are worshiping a false god. In fact, think of all the celebrities that we say we idolize, that people follow their advice on everything, you know, how to live and how to dress and what to think and what kind of foods to like. We do, in a way, have false gods and idolize ideas and people that are not God. So this is a little bit of a trickier commandment than it would initially seem. But again, it is the cornerstone of all the rest. Because if we don't accept one God, then why are we listening to the other nine? So that's number one. I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt and did not have any other gods before me. Number two, no graven images. So we're not supposed to have idols, not just of false gods. Again, refer to number one. We're not supposed to have other gods. But number two, we don't even do images of God. I just learned this kind of recently, but statues are kind of a 
problem in Judaism generally. For a long time, Jews were not, Jews might have been artists, but they would not have been sculptors. And if one enters a synagogue, there will not be statues of Moses or of God or of Abraham. It's interesting because in Catholic churches, and perhaps in others, there are Jesus on a cross, which would seem to me to be a graven image. I don't know what the theology for Catholics is surrounding that, but it is interesting. But for us, no graven images. And that one makes sense because it is very easy to start with just an image as a representation and then to go from representation to this is the thing we actually worship. Because it is easier to worship a thing that one can actually see than a nebulous idea, which is why people worshiped the sun and the moon, because people could see those. But we can't see God in quite the same obvious way. It could be a very quick devolution from, oh, this is just a statue of God that I have to decorate, but it's not God to, I'm going to pray specifically to this statue. So no graven images. Number three, we are told not to carry God's name in vain. People usually think of it as take, but Dennis Prager points out that the verb actually means carry. I think this distinction is important because it explains what this commandment really is about. Traditionally, it means, or people have interpreted it as not saying God's name randomly. So not saying, oh my God, it's so hot or, oh my god, that's a great dress, or any such exclamation. I see the merit in that, because God is holy, and using saying, oh my god, for every little thing could diminish our idea of God. Now, if it's some great excitement or great tragedy, and we say, oh my god, just get proposed to and you say, oh my god, yes, that seems reasonable, because that's a really big event. But if you just say, oh my god, I stubbed my toe, I understand the idea that let's not say God's name for every little thing. Though, of course, God is not God's name, at least from a Jewish perspective, because we have names for him in Hebrew. So I do feel that God is a little bit different. But I understand why people don't like saying, oh my God, for every little thing. In Judaism, there are also most names of God that are actually in Hebrew. We don't say unless it is specifically in prayer or when we're reading the Torah. So people will say God or Hashem, which just means the name, or HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which means blessed be he. It depends upon people's tradition. So there are different ways of saying God without actually saying his name because he is sacred and holy and we just don't bring it up all the time. So that's the traditional idea of not taking God's name in vain. I really like Dennis Prager's idea, which actually lines up with a Jewish teaching, which is saying God's name in vain means to do something in the name of God that God does not actually permit. For instance, blowing up oneself And a school in the name of God is taking God's name in vain because God not only doesn't condone, but is against such acts of violence. You're lying about God and you're making God look bad to someone who does not know God to say this, I am doing this for God because God doesn't want that. We shouldn't ascribe our actions to God when they are ungodly actions. For instance, people who justified slavery on the basis of God and Torah took God's name in vain because God does not condone slavery. And as I said, this lines up with a Jewish teaching that I remember being taught when I was in school as a child, which was the idea of a kiddush Hashem, which means to make Hashem's name holy. So when we would go out on field trips, it was very clear that we were from a Jewish school and we were reminded that anything, that how we acted would be a reflection, not just on ourselves and not just on our school, but on God, because we represented 
a Jewish community. And the way the world works is that people often take the leap of looking at one segment of a community and applying that to the community at large. And of course, when one is religious, that also applies to God, because we say that we follow what God teaches. So if we follow what God teaches, then we better act that way in front of people or they will get the wrong idea. So a kiddush Hashem would be to act charitably and kindly and politely and respectfully and to be a good representation of what it means to be a godly person. Taking God's name in vain is to act in a way which lies about what God wants and does not glorify his name and his mission on this earth. So that's a big one. That's a super, super biggie, super important for anyone who believes in God to take not taking God's name in vain very seriously. Number four is to keep the Shabbat and make it holy. We are given two different reasons for keeping the Shabbat here. We're told that it's a celebration of the creation of the world. Later in the Torah, it's a reminder of our freedom from Egypt. But either way, seventh day of the week, we rest from our work. And not just we rest, but our animals rest, our servants rest. If we have someone doing construction on our house, they rest. It's a day of rest for everyone. I've talked about the importance of Shabbat before. Whether you are Jewish or not, it is so important to take a break from the rest of the week. Having Shabbos helps to organize your week. It's sort of like the weekend does. People work for five days and then they have two days of a weekend. But a lot of people, other than not going to their jobs on the weekend, the weekend is not so different from the rest of the week. But for those of us who keep Shabbos, to whatever extent that we do, our whole week leads up to it. And it's it's sort of hard to explain, but it just, it gives structure to your life. Everything is leading up to the end of the week when you have a real rest and a day for reflection. It's a recharge and it's really incredible. And even if you do not come to Shabbos from a religious standpoint, I recommend everyone taking a day of rest, and figuring out what exactly that looks like. My recommendations would be taking a rest from news and social media, ideally taking a day from phones and computers and all electronic devices in that way, but I know that's hard for some people. So just taking a step away from things that you know will stress you out, like the news or social media or work email. So taking a break from that and then using Shabbos as a day to spend time with family and friends, whether that's inviting people over for a meal, to play board games, going on a walk somewhere. It is so amazing to celebrate Shabbos on a weekly basis. It will transform your life. That I can absolutely guarantee. So I highly recommend it. And of course, God recommends it. So, you know, don't take my word for it. Number five is honoring our father and mother. Notice it doesn't tell us to love our parents. It tells us to honor them. This commandment is telling us how to act, not to feel. In fact, all of the commandments are concerned with how we act, not how we feel. There is discussion in Judaism about whether or not God can tell us or cares about how we feel, but ultimately the important thing is our actions. This is a hard one because not everyone has really great parents. Some people have really awful parents, in fact, which is probably why it tells us to honor, not to love, because because there are parents that are probably beyond loving. But honor is different. Honor is treating someone with respect, whatever that looks like for an individual. Everyone has his own relationship with his parents. And again, some parents, some parents are really awful. They're abusive in physical or emotional or any number of ways. It's not so easy. So it's 
Obviously, it's not my job to tell you how to do that. I'm only relaying the message from God. But sort of like with Shabbos, figure out what it means for you to honor your father and mother. If your parents are really toxic to have around, okay, then don't invite them to Thanksgiving. But can you send them a card on their birthday as they get older if they need help calling their doctor to make appointments? Can you help them with that? Figure out what the way to respect your parents. Maybe for you, respecting your parents just means... (laughs) not cursing at them. Everyone's relationship with their parents is going to be a little bit different and what respect looks like is different. So figure out what honor your parents is and and work towards that. All right, now we come to the second tablet when it's a lot of the do nots, things that you might be more familiar with, still important to go over. So number six is do not murder. Yes, do not murder, not do not kill. Killing is different. There are times when it is okay to kill. And those are explained very specifically in the Torah. Capital punishment is allowed for in the Torah. So killing is one thing, but murder, deliberately planning ahead of time to murder an innocent person, that is unacceptable. Preservation of life and life itself is one of the most important things in Judaism. To save a life, we are allowed to break almost any commandment in the Torah. We can break Shabbos to save a life, for instance. So to take someone's life deliberately with malice aforethought that goes against everything else that the Torah teaches us. Number seven is not to commit adultery. Marriage is a sacred bond between man and woman and also God. And we're not allowed to come between that sacred bond. We can't sleep with a married person. If we're married, we can't sleep with another person. Marriage is the foundation of communities and communities are the foundation of a state or a country. And so to break those bonds and to come between them can fracture society. Also really hurts people and it's just wrong. So no adultery, control your libido people. Number eight, do not steal. This includes both theft of objects and also theft of people. So no stealing and also no kidnapping. It feels like theft has sort of been made light of. For instance, if we're out to dinner and our friend has a plate of french fries, we might ask, oh, can I steal one? I know most of us know that theft is wrong, but the more that we use a word like steal in a context like that, the more normalized it gets. Stealing is wrong, whether it is a pen from the office or a million dollars from a bank vault or a child from its parents. Theft is wrong. This commandment protects private property. People's ownership of things is very important and to cross that line of private property also fragments society. So don't steal. Does God understand gradations of sin? Is stealing a pen from work not as bad as stealing a human? Yeah, God's wise enough to know the difference between that, but it's not up to us to make those decisions. So just blanket statement, don't steal. Number nine is not to bear false witness. So if we are a witness in court, we must not lie. We have that law also in the United States. We're not allowed to commit perjury. In the Torah, though, it's interesting because the punishment for the person who was found guilty of bearing false witness was the same punishment that would have been enacted against the defendant had the liar been believed. It's a very serious thing to take someone's life. In a capital case, you're definitely taking someone's life. But even if the punishment is jail time, you're still taking someone's life into your hands by lying about what you know or what you've seen. So we are not allowed to lie in court. And finally, number 10, not to covet your neighbor's wife, ox, etc., anything that belongs 
to your neighbor. Now, to clarify, and I think we've talked about this in the past, it's one thing to admire what one's neighbor has, and it's even one thing to think to oneself, my neighbor has this really great car because he worked really hard. If I work really hard, I can also get that car. So to, ad- to admire our neighbor and to want to follow in their footsteps and to want to have a thing similar to what they have, that is fine. But to want to actually have the possession belonging to our neighbor, not just a Camaro, but their Camaro, not just a hot wife, but their hot wife, that's problematic. As we sort of related to theft, it breaks the bonds of private property, which can break down society. And also God has given each of us what we need to accomplish our goal on this earth and is not up to us to determine that someone that what someone has is too much. We don't know what they need. We don't know what God thinks they need. Along that same vein, if God has given everyone what they need, if we are coveting what someone else has, then we're not happy with what we have. And that's a rejection of what God has given us. But really the important thing here is that we're not allowed to take from other people. This is the only commandment that is about a feeling and not about an action. Again, not just admiring what our neighbor has, but envy to the point where we want to literally take what they have because we don't want our neighbor to have it. That is so toxic. It is toxic personally because it will make us depressed and angry. It is toxic to the community and to the society because people get angry at people who are richer, creates resentment between classes and between communities, and it is so dangerous. And that is why envy is the one emotion. Like this is the one commandment about an emotion, not about an action. Because even to feel that way can lead to such negative reactions that we need to stay away from even feeling that way. So those are the 10 commandments. I don't know what else to say about the 10 commandments or the 10 sayings. It's They're so foundational. They've been around for so long. It's hard to summarize or wrap it up on a podcast like this. But So I guess I just wanted to go over them with you because they did come up in the Parsha and they're so important to go over. Like anything that we know, it's important to go back and review it and keep our minds fresh on it and to examine how we act and our lives. Of course, there's so much more that can be learned and delved into with each of these, but I just wanted to give a brief overview. I want to end on one more interesting thought from the Parsha, which is the fact that the Parsha is named after Yisro who was not Jewish. Well, he converted, but he started off not Jewish. And this arguably is the most important Parsha in the whole Torah because the Ten Commandments are here and that's the foundation of Judaism and for good societies ever since. And yet the Parsha is named after Yisro. I came to on my own, though it was inspired by ideas that Dennis Prager has brought up in the past, but I haven't heard him talk about this specifically, though I'm sure he and other people have. So I came to it on my own, but I'm sure other people had this thought first, is that Yisro was not Jewish, even though he converted, or maybe that's even bigger. He was a convert, but he had the merit to have the Ten Commandments in a Parsha named after him. And I think this is God's way and the Torah's way of telling us that what God most cares about are our actions. He does not care about our bloodline, you know, our race, or who we are. He cares about what we do. And anyone has the ability to be a godly, good person. It does not matter where you come from. If you choose to act in a way that God wants, then that's what God cares about. And I think that's a really important message also for all of us to remember that it is not who we are, but what we do that God cares about and which will ultimately bring about a godly world on this earth. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, always be a little kinder than necessary. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. I hope today's episode made you think or brought some clarity and positivity to your day. Subscribe to the show to always get the most recent episode directly to your device. Please leave a rating and a review and share the show with your family, friends, or anyone you think might benefit from a little Torah wisdom and conservative thoughts. For more of my thoughts and ideas I share from others, please follow me on Instagram at conservativejewishfemale or read my blog conservativejewishfemale.blogspot.com. The intro-outro music is Chopin's Waterfall Etude. Have a great day!